Hello and welcome to The Intersection of Things, a podcast on the internet, technology, feminism, and all its unexpected intersections. Hey, Marion, hello. Hello, Ruth, how are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm excited to record this episode. Yeah, me too. What are, what are we talking about? Money, money, money. Yeah, we're, um... We're going to talk about cash. Make it rain. Yeah. So what's up with money and the internet? How is money and social justice related? Yeah, well, I was starting from this thought that I saw recently. It was something on the website of a charity called ActionAid where they mentioned this line. Money doesn't just give power. Power and systematic inequality decide who has money. And I was just like, yes, yes. This is just... Wait, 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 wait. Those were a lot of really big words. So like power and systematic inequality decides who has has money money. yeah like we talk a lot around money creating power in society you know if you have money you can get out of certain situations you don't have to go to prison maybe you can pay a fine instead or you can give money to a politician or all of those kind of concepts that we have you know in our media in our minds but I thought this point around systematic inequality and existing power structures decide who gets that money. You know, it, it's a cycle there of like power gives money, money gives power. Yeah, yeah, makes all the sense. And one of the trends that we're trying to, I mean, talk about and discuss here because it has to do with the internet is, well, let's start with this whole idea of like a cashless society. What's up with just why is there such a big insistence on getting rid of coins and bills and and cash yeah like i've been seeing this a lot in the uk like banks closing there isn't even a bank near where i live anymore like my local branch closed ages ago and then in rural areas where my family live they don't even have cash points as much like there's like one cash point in the whole town and then people have to queue up and use them which so it seems really weird because obviously people do want cash points and yet they're kind of disappearing with this idea that we'll all just pay with for everything with our bank cards with our contactless cards even though i totally admit i use my contactless card in london all the time Hmm. so but what why is this a thing like what are the pros and the cons of that because i know one of the first things that people tell you is like okay it's it's all about access access to your wealth access to your money and of course it just having a cashless society makes it a lot easier to buy things because you have your entire bank account at your disposal at any given moment right so i do see it as a little incentive a huge incentive to reduce that friction of um whenever you're out and about shopping and you know it's just way easier to buy 10 four dollar coffees than you know spend how much would that be forty dollars all of a sudden and you don't know where that went um but so yeah what are the positives and negatives of cash less Yes. I mean, I like that it means I'm not carrying money around with me in some ways because I'm never worrying about getting my purse stolen in the same way. You know, you don't feel like if you did drop it or lose it, you're not actually losing a lot of money. You can just cancel your card and you can carry on. So, All right. So safety is one. Yeah. And also, I generally appreciate being able to use my card for travel and always being able to just like go somewhere if you need to. Like you're not going to have that situation of being stuck somewhere. And then there's no cash point and need to get money out. And, you know, traveling across London, it's easy to use your card all the time. But even if you want to travel further, it's just like, it's that convenience of I'm not going to find myself with no money, just isolated somewhere. As long as I've got my card, I can get home. So it's kind of security. So it's access to money, the security of having that access, if you have the money. Um, But there's a concern too. Like there's a lot of cons that I don't know I mean, we obviously just give away a lot of our rights just in the name of convenience and more on that later. But cash is one of the most like it's not the most, but one of the most privacy friendly things, right? Like you can go and buy condoms and tampons or whatever. Um, And if you're a teenager whose parents don't want you to have access to all of these things, you can just, you know, bring a bill and you buy the thing and there's no record on your credit card statement that you went and bought this, right? If you're in a, an abusive relationship, which it's known that a lot of abusers control the other person's bank account. Um, if you have cash, there's no way that someone knows, oh, what are the coffee shops you hang out in? What 
services are you using? What are your restaurants? What's your superstore or supermarket? So are we trading in this privacy for convenience? Yeah, I mean, I think it really depends on what I want to say, like what your threat model is. But you know, that's a term that refers to when you're trying to assess what kind of risks you have in your life, rather than trying to apply all security and privacy measures to yourself, you think about like what measures you want to take for yourself. And I think that for me, I don't worry about it so much, but that's because it's not a threat in my life. But for exactly those reasons that you gave, that is why you need, for people who those are real threats, they need to still have the option to pay with cash. And I think that the other thing that I was thinking about with it is all of those reasons, even those people who want to stay secure and private, have a bank account. And what I find like more worrying than that about just getting rid of cash entirely, which I know a lot of banks want, is then you have to have a bank account. I mean, hey, hmm, coincidence. Like, why is it banks are lobbying so heavily? Because then you would have to have an account. And then once you say you have to have an account, what about people who don't have the conditions that mean that you need in order to open an account? Basically, if you're homeless. Mm -hmm. If everyone has only card, you can't give to homeless people very easily, but they also can't gain money very easily. If you can't spend anything, how do you... You can't gain money and then you also don't have the conditions to spend it because you need an address to set up a bank account. So yeah, it like locks a lot of people out of society if you say everyone needs to have an account rather than saying, if I give someone five pounds, they can now spend that five pounds on getting a hot meal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's also, I mean, is there a concern that now um, with banks making all of this money from transactions, is there a concern that there is an intermediary between you and the business or you and the friend that you're giving money to? All of a sudden there's this third institution that's between you and the coffee shop, for example, uh, that's profiting off you using your own money, which is kind of interesting to me it's just like all sold again in the name of um convenience but like all of a sudden banks are becoming the buffer between you and whatever service you want to access and like you said not everybody has access to a bank account also just not only to add to homelessness but like depending on the country you're in sometimes you have to prove citizenship or status um so this leaves people who are already in a vulnerable position locked out of of having a place to keep their money safe yeah um or to receive benefits or to cash checks yeah like the government encouraged um well gave the banks power recently to freeze and close the accounts of people that it thought were in the uk illegally so now banks have to carry out immigration checks on people and as we both know then you have that situation where they're going to err on the on the err on the side of caution, and like you, how many people are going to have banks closed, have their accounts closed, who actually should be able to open them? But now with our hostile environment that the government has, that's just one more step towards making people feel unwelcome in this country. Well, and it's another step to surveil people, right? It's like you are creating. Uh, or adding to an institution that already has power holding the people's wealth to like snoop on people and tell on people and well seize assets from people uh, I think at the time of recording this week I think it broke that Bank of America if I'm correct I think um, they are also in the United States they were also suspect of canceling bank accounts of people they suspected did not have citizenship or quote-unquote papers so this is not isolated to to the uk like this is a phenomenon that we're seeing and like you said if money is power it is very interesting to see how institutions are being used to further control sectors of the population that are already hyper marginalized yeah and again like this is possible because it's for the rest of us or for some of us that don't have those concerns right now and emphasis on right now because you never know when you're going to have them um I mean, this is only possible because it's convenient for us. So, I don't know. I think it's like the theme, one of the th themes of this podcast in general is like, know what you're trading in, in the name of convenience. Yeah. Like, it's surprisingly political. I mean, it shouldn't be surprising because money and politics go hand in hand. But when the government talks about, you know, pushing forward all these like cashless programs, it's it's important to remember that there are real political consequences. And once again, you've got to look at who has power and who doesn't. And how are the people who don't have power going to be impacted by this kind of decision? 
no matter how much, as you say, it's framed in terms of convenience and protecting us against crime. Yeah. And this is not to say that like this podcast endorses only cash, blah, blah, blah. It's like when you start noticing or knowing and being aware of the implications of our technologies, then you can start having very different forms or kinds of conversations about how these technologies look like, who's involved in them, and the power that governments and institutions give to these technologies to to affect the behavior of people in their lives. Um, so for example, we're not saying, let's all move to cash or like <clears throat> Bitcoin. Um, but we <laughs> but but we I think I don't know, I don't know you, but like by having this conversation it's like, okay, let's just be aware of what's in the soup that we're eating and just see what what are the the pros and the cons and what what we're giving up. Mainly, you know, just trying to get people to be aware of this and if you're designing technologies be aware of this too basically plus one to that everything you just said is brilliant (laughs) there's nothing there's nothing i can add to that that was just like yep perfection and also did i did i detect like a really beautiful smooth segue that you just presented to talk about bitcoin yeah what's that i've heard of it oh my god do you know what even after all this time i still find bitcoin utterly confusing but I can I can do my best to talk about Bitcoin with people and still I'm just like but but why why though is my reaction to so much of it. I mean, yeah, it's like is it a scam? Okay, tell me what's up. Let's with let's start at the top. A small attempted explanation of Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's essentially a purely digital currency that's not regulated by banks and you can obtain them via two main ways. You can buy them or you can mine them. And Mining them involves owning expensive hardware and then using a computer process which collects pending Bitcoin transactions, turns them into mathematical equations. Then when a miner solves the puzzle and creates this new blockchain of transactions, they get a Bitcoin. That's my attempted explanation. And I still find that a little hard to like fully process but they're a digital currency yeah so it's just another form of money yeah and it holds value because i don't know i gosh now i'm like oh god i'm not an economist i mean everything holds value when you when you assign value to it yeah and it's interesting right like money i mean not to get all philosophical here but it's one of the biggest like fantasies that the entire world has to be in on (laughs) Like, it's so easy. Like, I have right now, I have, like, a bill from, like, from Mexico. I cannot get food from that here. So it's just, like, because Canada's not in on, on the fantasy. Um, I can go to a, a, a place to exchange it for something that looks like, you know, that the fantasy everybody agreed on. But anyways, we're, we're just getting too off topic. So Bitcoin is this new form of money. Yeah. That that just, and that a lot of people are getting rich of it. I mean, the thing about, like, it having value or not, I was just thinking, I mean, the whole thing is that, it seems to me to work a lot more like some kind of share because people buy and sell the bitcoins, but they're not buying and selling with the bitcoins. It's more like an mm. item that people are sharing around, like a Dali painting, if Dali paintings mm. were a currency, which interesting. I would be up for, to be honest, because then I'd own something interesting in between. Anyway, now I'm really off topic. Um, Bitcoin. Yeah. Those those things. So what what made it so popular? I mean, shit, I don't know the answer. I mean, I have I have the feeling. I mean, I don't know, but like when Bitcoin, as I remember, I mean, I might be wrong because I am not in on this. So all of like listeners, everything that I'm saying comes from a very peripheral sort of perspective to this thing, which is I remember the first time I encountered any discussion around Bitcoin, it had to do with um, Silk Road, was it? Yeah, yeah. Was that like a, uh, uh, like this, was it dark web? I don't know, this un- this place, this marketplace on the internet where you could buy and sell drugs, sex. Some people even said that you could like hire assassins there. So it was this like marketplace for things that were prohibited. And of course, if you are engaging in illicit activities, whether they're like buying pot, which is, Arguably, I would say very different from killing somebody. Um, yeah, I'd say the same. They're quite yeah, different. Right, they're, they're, they're quite different. But again, they're both deemed in a lot of places super illegal. You, in theory, you would not want uh, that transaction to be tracked back 
to you let's just take the pot example or like even let's just take it back to sex 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 toys there's some places where you cannot buy sex toys because those are illegal so you go into the dark web you want to buy a sex toy and um but you don't want you don't want that transaction tracked back to you and as we said earlier in this episode when you're doing the thing with the bank accounts you can track everything so the way i learned about bitcoin was like oh all of a sudden there's this marketplace that requires you to trade uh within some degree of anonymous status and bitcoin is the most secure way to go about and do these transactions without them being tracked back to you and you would still not lose your money like that was when i first heard of it that was kind of like the appeal it's like there's this dark market and this is the dark money you used for that dark market and because there's a lot of money in that that's how bitcoin also started gaining traction yeah like from what i understand they're not even anonymous now like you or maybe they never were but people didn't have the tools but now you can still find Mm. who's spending them anyway i remember hearing about them with the question of whether or not the whole thing was a ponzi scheme where it's it's a true thing that the person who invented them makes the most money you know you invent a thing and then assign value to it and that value grows and the other people who got in there early definitely made a lot of money So whether or not the concept is a scam, they did incredibly well out of it. Maybe it's a Ponzi Mm. scheme that started working out. Interesting. Yeah. And and after Bitcoin, a lot of, um, how do they call them? Crypto coins? Cryptocurrencies? Yeah. Uh, A lot of cryptocurrencies started popping up, uh, probably because of how profitable it proved to be. I think even Venezuela launched its own, the Petro coin. Um, and it was like deemed an easy way to bring in money into a country that was just is still suffering greatly from an economic crisis. Um, so it's I don't know. I, I'm still very confused. Uh, I obviously missed my opportunity to be rich. Yeah, because I did not buy anything. I think the thing that I've never really got about Bitcoin is why is it such a bro thing? You know, I always just feel like it's a uh, currency that men always talk about. And like, seems to be a thing that they're just like, it's the best. It's so cool. Yes, Bitcoins. And I'm just like, why? Even now, it's always like bros who are telling me how great it is. I mean, do you think it becomes sort of like part of an identity? Like, if you're a bro in tech, you love your disruption. (laughs) We're back there again. Uh, Yeah, yeah. It's like the magical word. So like, do you want to disrupt money itself? Like, what is the myth of the disruptor of like, you take a very established institution and then you just flip it on its toes. Is that an expression? It will be from now on. I I really don't know. I really don't know what's, but I do notice this, like a lot of things that are tech based now seem to be uh, following that myth of the genius of the, you know, the person who outsmarted the rest and won. And I think Bitcoin did offer this, like an avenue for these things to to happen. Because a lot of people did get rich. And it, like you said, it was like a scheme that worked. Yeah. And I guess there's like the hipster idea of being first to something or doing something that Mm. no one else is doing. And like there's a... An excitement of being able, pride as well, of being able to tell someone that you're doing something that's so like new and cutting edge and you can be like, yes, look at me, I'm so advanced. Well, now there's real value, like literally you have more money if you're like, I was in Bitcoin before anybody even heard of it. You have the money to prove it. And that's a status symbol sentence. Like you can be saying, hey, I was really into this tech. But what you're telling me is I have loads of money. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. It's it's weird. Uh, It also has to do with um, access in terms of uh, access to technology and access to the creation of assets that represent power or money. Um, You mentioned before, like money generates money. Um, There's a cycle and the lack of money puts you further into the cycle of poverty. But for example, if you're going to have a a currency and the tools are technologies, who is controlling technologies right now? It's mostly, mostly men, mostly white. And so who will have first dibs at creating these new things that all of a sudden everybody will be in on and have agreed that have value. So, you know, it's like this, this, it's almost this 
thing of um, like who got here first, but also who had the tools to get here first, and also who had the power to actually make this thing actually be a thing. This thing actually be a thing. Oh, do you do you ever wish you had them? Like, would you get one now? I would not get one now. But listeners, if you want to donate in Bitcoin, you know, like we'll find a way. We'll we'll find a way. <laughs> please give us money we need better mics um but like i mean part of me obviously wishes that at some point i'd been like eh, i have 20 dollars. i'll probably just buy this thing just because now i would have had twenty thousand dollars or i don't know what the conversion is but it's like it's a lot right it was it was huge now i think i remember december last year uh one bitcoin at least in canada was like eleven thousand dollars and there's people who bought them for like a buck or two back in the day so that was like that's a lot. That's why there's a lot of like millionaires right now that were overnight millionaires and governments that don't even know how to tax that. But, but yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess I've talking about taxing it, that comes back to like the bro thing and like the, the sort of ideology of I, I can do everything on my own. I think that's a really big part of it. You know, people who mm-hmm. feel like the government shouldn't play any part in their life and that they can be self-sufficient and having a digital currency is another aspect of this. I don't need a government. I don't need a system. I've got my own version of everything. And, you know, believing that you can operate outside of taxation, I mean, it always irritates me because people literally use everything that's taxed all around them whilst pretending that they don't. Even if you use private hospitals, you're still driving on roads and walking through parks and under street lamps and all of these things. So side rant about people who think that taxation's not for them and the thing the thing is i mean you did mention before is like i got here first also i mean i live in this place canada who's like a colonial nation i mean we still have the queen of england you, we have your queen well not your personal queen but queen yeah we're not best um no no i thought you were like at like the wedding the other day anyways i i mean maybe it's because i i i live here that i'm i cannot think of this whole like first you know i got here first as as this recall it reminds me of colonialism right it's like a you were not here first same with bitcoin this is nothing really new but also it's like this whole idea of like i got here first therefore i own this and this is my terms and i'm disrupting even colonialism itself was like fuck you i'm like disrupting the powers that be and like god gave me this mandate to expand and it's weird how like the dna of of those uh, you know systems or frameworks or, or ways of going about life is like why is there value in being first why is there value on like disrupting a very established system rather than fixing it or rather than you know i guess we can get into philosophical questions but like to link it back to colonialism like we're seeing it in uh what i guess naomi klein would say like disaster capitalism like as a lot of people know uh hurricane maria hit puerto rico uh a year ago ish and i mean just this week again at the moment of recording it came out that the official death toll of uh of people who who died as a consequence of the hurricane and not only the hurricane but the lack of proper response and care for the victims was in the thousands it like it it was more than 9-11 so you have this island who's like basically a colony of the united states and the next thing we know is that a lot of people bitcoin people included were just like going into the island or at least talking very seriously about that because energy and things would be way cheaper for them to for them to mine bitcoin so it was seen as this land of opportunity and i mean that word is loaded right but like or that phrase is loaded but like it's almost like huh this place is devastated let's start mining bitcoin because the tax cuts are going to be fantastic and they are in in an attempt of reconstruction we saw stuff like i don't know if tesla was involved (laughs) talking about bro culture uh but they were interested in setting up like an electric grid it's almost like huh your entire electric electrical system went out let's do like a solar powered tesla owned sun based electric grid and you start seeing how after a disaster hits a lot of the vulture capitalism i guess people just come in and try to suck everything out of it yeah and then that's where you get back in with this bitcoin thing and you can bring multiple problems all together because 
the thing with the Bitcoin mining that I mentioned earlier is that actually uses a huge amount of electricity. And I've, I've got a quote from an article here that says, the annual electricity consumption for mining Bitcoin increased from 9.5 terawatt hours per year to 48 terawatts hours in the last 12 months, which is 2.5 times higher than Puerto Rico's total consumption of 19 terawatt hours. Total. Yeah. So they literally can't support cryptocurrency mining on the island with existing uses of energy, like how it actually needs to use energy to feed and look after all the people who live there. And yet, all these people are moving in and expecting to mine Bitcoins on the island and use up all that energy. And they're moving in because, as you mentioned, they're being offered zero capital gains tax on assets acquired after moving to Puerto Rico as a way of motivating people. But they're not being taxed on it. So again, they're just using the energy, using the land, but not contributing back. Yeah, and this is something that people doing this are very aware of. And and I know that this is like a, not a first-hand experience, second-hand experience. I know someone who was at a place with a lot of Bitcoin people. And what this person said is like, yeah, these people were joking. Like, hey, so are you, are you going to Puerto Rico now? And they were like laughing at at that like it's it's a little adventure right it's again it's like go and conquer this is something that's it's not like oh you're reading too much into this or like oh that's the way markets work like people know very well what the human cost of this is it's just do people care or not because there's a lot of money a lot of money to be made yeah so bitcoin's a whole thing what else is weird in terms of money and the internet well the thing is whenever you start taking away say cash Cash is a technology in and of itself. It's it's not a digital technology completely, although it is because it's kind of backed up by banks and stuff. But when you shift the exchange of, of say, money, of assets uh, into the digital, there is a whole, like, a new realm of things that can happen in terms of pricing. I mean, ultimately, we use money to buy things, services. You know, it's an exchange sort of mechanism. And... When all of this is put into zeros and ones, uh, there's a lot of analytics and a lot of things that you can do with it. And one of them, it's not on the money giving side, but it's on the money receiving side, which is like, how do you price things? A loaf of bread can be, you know, a couple dollars. What if I told you that you can change and adjust the price of that loaf of bread depending on the demand on the second, right? If Ruth writes this blog post and it goes viral because I make the best loaves of bread ever, all of a sudden now there's going to be a lot of demand. I can probably charge, you know, $10, $20 per loaf. I mean, in theory, there are laws that kind of prevent you from just doing that. But we're starting to see that with services like Uber, where um, they use the thing, I think they call it, what, algorith algorithmic pricing or like search? Yeah, they do that search pricing. Thing, which is basically says... Say there's an event somewhere in the city and a lot of people are going to need rides to and from this event. So the demand for rides increases. So you need an incentive for people to bring their cars and work for Uber. So the incentive is, hey, there's a lot of demand. And if there's fewer cars, the rides will cost more. Because if I only have three cars and there's like a thousand people exiting this place, I'm going to charge. They can charge hundred dollars to take you home um and this is all based on again demand and again because people is like hell yeah i'm gonna give people a ride for a hundred dollars that creates creates an incentive so there's more supply and so more people are incentivized to provide the service they go to the zone where there's more money and of course the more cabs or the more not cabs the more uber cars there are there's more supply so then it becomes cheaper like per ride so all of a sudden you know a ride is only five dollars a lot of people will start being like eh it's not worth it for me to go there for five bucks so then that's sort of in theory that's how it works it's sort of like contr helps control the supply demand that's like algorithmic pricing on paper it's just like eh, it makes sense that's just the way markets work you know people want more they will pay more if there's not enough and if there's too much then things get cheaper there are problems with this, though. Um, can you think of problems, Ruth? Wasn't there a thing around this happening when there are disasters or when there are actual crises? 
And then they were making loads of extra money from people needing to move in a crisis situation because everyone needed to be in a certain area. Yep, this has happened. Uh, and obviously Uber has come out and said, sorry, this was an algorithm thing. We did not account for an earthquake to happen or a fire to happen. And they sort of come out and apologize. Yeah, that, that has happened. This is not the only thing, though. Uber also tends to operate under the assumption that they don't need to have like a license like if you're a if you're a cab driver you need to buy your license and also you have to adhere by certain prices otherwise you would just be like price fixing sort of thing and uber's idea to quote unquote disrupt the taxi market and the public transportation market too because this is not only just cabs it's also public transit is if we create enough supply then rides will be cheap enough people would rather use an uber than a cab people would rather use an uber than pay you know couple dollars for the train so what we're starting to see is that the value of giving someone a ride lowers like all of a sudden as a cab driver you cannot compete because you just won't give someone a ride for two dollars like it's just not worth it it's not covered in your insurance like it doesn't cover it doesn't cover insurance gas you know, all of a sudden the service itself just gets so devalued. Uber still makes money. But when we talked about this in, in the work episode, the offloading of risk, like all of a sudden it's just you're absolutely unable to make a living because the value just dropped, um, which is not what used to be the case for cab drivers because prices, again, prices are fixed. And, and and we're seeing it like in Vancouver, for example, cabs now um, in certain areas, they just charge a flat to go to the airport and that was because I think Uber wanted to get in Vancouver still doesn't have Uber and also public transit did such a good job to get people from the city to the airport that like cabs were just like hey now people with a lot of luggage can have public transit better compete and and they react to that but again like that's just one of many things yeah I always think about with the the algorithmic pricing thing the thing that's not about competing with other people, but when the algorithm just notices that you want something and then charges you more for it. I always think it's interesting mm. that a lot of people know about the the Skyscanner hack. The, um, it's a website you can use to buy plane tickets. And if you look at a plane ticket and you're not really sure if you want to get it and you're still thinking about which time you want to travel, you go back and look at that plane ticket again two hours later, it's gone up in price hasn't gone up in mm. price it's just gone up in price for you because they know you want it and once you've looked at it the computer remembers that and then tries to charge you more and it's funny how many people will always be like looking at plane tickets in three different browsers you know on different computers in order to actually get accurate prices and i think it's strange how much we've accepted that we're being conned like when you're buying a plane mm. ticket everyone goes right they're going to try and cheat me out of money now. And so I have to sit down and I have to plan a scheme to outthink the algorithm in order to just get a plane ticket. I just find it interesting because I always find that a lot of like non-techie people are aware in that situation of like taking precautions and using different browsers and that kind of thing. Yep. And then you see that same kind of thinking or like the same kind of algorithm that Skyscanner is using of looking at what you're looking at and making judgments about how much you'll spend in other situations that are more serious. And there's been a lot of research on how this is happening in housing ads and housing price discrimination. There's a really amazing article in Vox that I think you really like as well because yeah, it's great. And also I like that it has like animated pictures and has a little game. Link in the footnotes. Yeah, it's great. And it's all about like ad targeting um, with housing ads. And how like Facebook's ad targeting system was allowing people to get around really strict rules around how you can advertise houses in order to make sure that people like everyone is getting a fair price, is getting the same offers uh, regardless of race. And the ads that use things that based on people's interest allow you to target people based on similar likes and wealth mm. markers yep. that are not 
obvious that aren't race-based. It gives the example of Pearl Jam, and it's like middle-class white people like Pearl Jam. So if you target your housing adverts to those people, then those people see the advert and black people don't see the advert. So you're doing racial discrimination, maybe not intentionally, maybe intentionally, but... I mean, it's the use of proxies, right? Yeah. It, a proxy is a stand-in, not a stand-in, but like well, a proxy. <laughs> it's like, yeah, a standing for something else. Like you target fans of Pearl Jam as opposed to fans of trap music. And it w- you would get very different audiences, as fa- Facebook likes to call it. And the thing with Skyscanner is it's easy to see when you're being tricked, right? It's easy to go, well, okay, why is this flight like a hundred quid more than it was yesterday? Have the prices really gone up? And so you can you can see it happening before you and you can figure out a way around it. But if you're getting different prices, if you're being charged more for something based on the things you've liked on Facebook, it's really hard to see that. Well, and also part of buying things is also having access to those things. And if you're never shown those things, if uh, it's, I think it's almost like now, it might have always been the case, but now with algorithms, it's easier to do it literally behind a keyboard. There's certain markets that are able to model the audiences that they want to have. And this is this is at the root of, like you said, discrimination, right? It's like if you want to create a s- suburb somewhere and you only market to like white people, which is what used to happen and I mean, sort of still happens. I mean, marketing is just based on audiences, right? And uh, it's just that algorithms are making it a lot easier to do that and to circumvent rules and laws that were put in place in theory, at least to start addressing um, systemic inequality. Yeah. I'm thinking of Weapons of Mass Destruction by Cathy O'Neill. I've been reading that book recently. And she calls these kinds of algorithms, these as weapons of mass destruction. And especially- That's like math with numbers. Yeah. Nice pun. And yeah, she talks a lot about how in her definition of when an algorithm becomes one of these weapons, it's when it's lacking in transparency. Like you can't see the decisions that are being made about you. And it becomes harder and harder to challenge inequality or to see inequality if it's being disguised as being something that a computer is in charge of. That when humans are making the decisions, you can find the human or you can find where that decision was made. But when a machine is making a decision, it's much harder to find the point of responsibility and make it change because people will say, it's not us, like it's the computer and we gave the computer data and... It decided that this is how much you deserve to be charged. Yeah, and I think uh, if I think it was Kathy O'Neill's book, but there's a couple of other books um, on algorithmic discrimination that almost always arrive at very similar conclusions, which is not to stop making algorithms and use of technology to make decisions, but just to be very aware and proactively, you know, well, act um, in a way that that these biases are identified and kept from being reproduced because we i mean human algorithms ultimately are created our technology is created by us and we are super flawed and what we're starting to see or what we're seeing more and more is that because a computer made a decision all of a sudden there's no accountability responsibility or there's this illusion of um neutrality that the technocrats love to to attribute to technology but the truth is, like, computers have our DNA, um, metaphorically speaking, as for now. And our DNA comes with systemic biases, racism, sexism, misogyny, um, homophobia, and all of those intersections that we love talking about yeah. here. Yeah, even again, like, even when we're talking about money and pricing, it's still the exact same thing around... Well, you're feeding in information about how much you think certain groups spend or all those kind of things like where people spend, who is doing it, like then where does that data come from? Who is data gathered on? There's a lot of questions that you have to ask about what goes into any kind of data set. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Also, Automating Inequality by Virginia Eubanks, top-notch book on this, and Algorithms of Oppression by Safia Emoja. Also good. That one. It's a good one too. Also, another book that I would like to recommend is uh, The Poverty of Privacy Rights by uh, Chiara M. 
bridges, which we talked a little bit about this in the health episode, but it's about um, how people who don't have money or assets, or people are considered poor, have a very different scenario to tackle in life than people who do have money. And when you put this in, in the context of technology, it's like who gets surveilled? If you need social assistance, you have to give up a lot of um, of your own privacy. You need to give basically the government or corporations hired by government full access to your life. And that includes medical tests, um, home, I was going to say home invasions, what's basically home invasion was like home checks um women particularly are terribly targeted by uh these systems that say that basically by quantifying the body and the person um they would be able to say whether they're virtuous enough to receive social assistance which again a, a wealthy person will never have to give up that much so there's like this I, I mean this book is great the poverty of privacy rights and um yeah talks a little bit about that and kind of acknowledges that the cycle of poverty is very real and it's only made bigger by technologies you know it's like if you don't have a car and there's no public transit then you cannot get to work and if you don't get to work on time then you get fired if you get fired then you don't have money and maybe you can never buy a car or your car you cannot fix and if you don't fix it maybe you have a broken light and you get a fine and if you cannot pay your fine you know like yeah <laughs> you can get to jail you can get shot like it's it's just it's the uh no one can save money like the rich you know you know the vimes theory of economics from terry pratchett uh no wait can, can you explain yeah okay i feel like the vimes theory of economics is how so many people have understood all of this stuff about the cycle of poverty it's just a perfect who's, paragraph who's vimes he is uh the captain in Nightwatch in the Terry Pratchett Discworld books. Um nerd. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's possibly the best Discworld book, arguably. Um definitely my partner's favorite. All right, I'm going to just read this whole section and it's brilliant and everyone deserves to hear it. Okay. <clears throat> the reason that the rich were so rich, Fimes reasoned, was because they managed to spend less money. Take Boots, for example. He earned $38 a month plus allowances. A really good pair of leather boots cost $50, but an affordable pair of boots, which was sort of okay for a season or two and then leaked like hell when the cardboard gave out, cost about $10. Those were the kind of boots that Vimes always bought, and wore until the soles were so thin that he could tell where he was in Ankh-Morpork on a foggy night by the feel of the cobbles. But the thing was that good boots last for years and years. A man who could afford $50 had a pair of boots that he'd still be keeping his feet dry in 10 years' time, while a poor man who could only afford cheap boots would have spent $100 on boots in the same time and would still have wet feet. This was what Captain Samuel Vimes' boots theory of socio-economic unfairness. Mike drop, but mics are expensive, so we're not dropping anything. Yep, I think that sums it up really nicely. And um, thank you for that. That's just amazing. Yeah, I always think about like just the boots thing. And it comes up so many times in life. Like Yeah, and with more and more, I mean, I don't know if we've ever had this. I don't want to romanticize the past by any bloody means. But with the fragmentation of society and like us living very individual and individualistic, is that a word? Lives, there's like... Who are you going to rely upon when something like that happens? Like, do you have a friend that can lend you a couple bucks? Do you have a friend who... Is it morally okay? Because there's a lot of... I mean, there's this saying, right? At least in the United States, that nobody's poor. Everybody's just like a, quote-unquote, temporarily embarrassed millionaire. Mm -hmm. um, so, like, asking for help. Like, everything that, the, that you just described basically acknowledges... I mean, this is so easy to understand, but acknowledges that there's a, a, a base unfairness to all of this. And it's so ubiquitous, it's everywhere, <laughs> that it's, it's so hard that a solution or sets of solutions have not actually been put into place. I mean, social the social safety net is one of them. I mean, there's some countries that do it better than others. But it's like, why is it so hard? Yeah. And then they've got the other side of it, which is like celebrities who get given free shit like free designer clothes and you just realize how much designer clothes is just entirely like a con built for the middle classes oh. you think <laughs> that you want all this stuff and the people who you see wearing it you think wow i've got to be like that and they're not even buying it they're dressed in it by the designer in order to be seen wearing it 
Like, yeah. it's 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 um, how Oscar Wilde, you know, importance of being earnest kind of character who goes around living on credit. Yeah. Like, oh, if you're rich, yeah. you never spend any money at all. Yeah. Well, and uh, also, I mean, I remi- remember it. I think Oscar Wilde, at some point, he was he did a letter to Bozy Douglas, the infamous lover whose father fucking sent Oscar Wilde to jail. Anyways, um, who also, the father invented the rules of boxing, which I'm very conflicted. Anyways. Side note, I like Oscar Wilde, but um, yeah, Bosie at some point told Oscar Wilde because he was draining Oscar, you know, his bank accounts just by living rich. And the second Oscar Wilde said, like, hey, Bosie, like, we might need to, like, not go on trips all the time. Bosie was like, a gentleman doesn't know how much money he has on his bank account. It's almost like, don't just go away. And I was like, of course, because you're living up him. Anyways, but yeah, you're, you're uh, just side note. But yeah, I, I like this whole thing. Like the client needs to sell stuff to the middle class because the rich people don't pay for it. The poor people cannot afford it. It's the middle class who like goes for it gladly. Yeah. Do you ever feel conned when you like, oh, I like that coat. It's $200. Cannot afford it. And then like a month from now, it's like reduced to 25 And you're like, wait a second. God damn it. You know what? I, I, I hardly ever feel conned. I always feel like I've achieved something if I get it. And now you're like, no, I am full on being conned. Because then you're like, yeah, look at this. I got this in the sale. What a success. Yeah, I got this. I mean, like, if I find, like, a designer coat in a charity shop and then I feel like I've conquered the world because it's it's a trick. Because, you know, obviously the coat doesn't really have the doesn't have the value other than what you bought it for. And yet you feel like you've got something worth more. It's it's all it's all being tricked. And yet I well, fall and for someone, it. And as someone who, I mean, I mean, what do I do for a living? I am a designer. I am trained in brand making. So it's, it's, it's fascinating. It's just like capitalism is everywhere. But it's just like the symbols, right? Um, I think Killer Mike from uh, Run the Jewels, the amazing hip hop duo, uh, he said in one interview when, I think, I don't know, I think it might have been uh, W. Kamau Bell who interviewed him. Basically, they were talking about some stat that came when they were talking, saying like, oh, in the United States, black people per capita own more Mercedes-Benz than white people. Like, why are they, or then Rolexes or something like that. It was like a thing about cars and uh, jewelry that, I don't know, the stat came out like, per capita, like I said, population, they own more. And and Killer Mike said like, um, and I'm paraphrasing here, but like, in a capitalist world, when you cannot afford freedom, you you buy the symbols of freedom. And like and what other community in the United States would want more of that in the black community? So you buy the car, you buy the jewels, you buy the symbols of freedom, and it, it does make you feel a little bit better, right? And it's but the the other population, the white people, they don't have to. Like they uh, because because, you know? So I just this whole concept of the symbols of freedom. I mean, I've done it myself. Like I'm just like I'm going to go buy that nice pair of pants. And I feel like a million bucks. But I I'm very well aware that's just like let me give in into the theater of branding. Let me give in it's a little bit of escape and it's a it's just the theater of branding. That's nice. Yeah. That's a nice phrase. Yeah. Every time you enter a store, I'm beginning to think of it as like a theater production. And I'm just like, who stage designed this? What's the brand? What What does it smell like? Like, it's just fascinating. And it's weird because sometimes I'm just like, it's a very different experience when you approach a store, a mall or, or a place and you look at it as, as theater. The theater. Yeah, it's all set design. Yeah, it's it's a story. It's a, and and again, you can get a little, you can get a souvenir. It's it's just fascinating. Anyways, that was that was a a thing. Anything else that we need to you know talk about in terms of money? I I feel like we're kind of done here. I mean, there's a there's a world of things to talk about because with money is economics, with capitalism is every associated thing. We could talk about monopolies and all the rest of it, but. You know, we could save that for another episode. Yeah, we have to talk about like the military and then gendered specific stuff. And then we the rainbow washing, which we touched in a different episode. I don't know. There's a lot. So yeah, let's wrap it there. It was awesome. It was fun. Thank you. Listeners, let us know what you think about money. Yeah, tell us tell us if you're using bitcoins and you're a woman or not a bro. Yeah. Like what, why, what are you doing? Do you like it? Is it good? Should we do it? Would you give us 
half a bitcoin i don't know how much that is anyways um yeah let us know what's up with that and before we do that uh ruth anything you would want to take with you from this episode i mean basically you um (laughs) (laughs) oh oh yeah that's cute uh and any blushes (laughs) Uh, you said a lot of smart things in this episode where I was just like sitting here nodding being like, damn, yeah, spot on. Wow. I like the thing you just said about the theater of, of branding. I thought you said some, oh gosh, darn it. I can't remember everything that you said, but there were some really interesting points. Um, you know, that thing that we were talking about, like right at the start about convenience as well. I think the we're, the the thought about cash and convenience and how we just have to be very wary about what is sold to us with that label and it doesn't mean Mm -hmm. that it's not true that it's convenient or that it's a good idea but that there are going to be layers around this that we're not picking up on and we have to really analyze it a little bit further and i forgot to quote on that there's a great article by tim Wu from net neutrality fame um i think it was in the new yorker it's called the tyranny of convenience we'll put it on the footnotes it's a long-ish read, but it's a really good read on on basically that, right? The use of technologies. It's almost like good and evil doesn't come from good and evil. Evil will sneak in because it's easy. (laughs) That's what, that's basically the thesis of the article. And it's a a really good one. Give it a read. Yeah, the tyranny of convenience. Team Woo. What about you? What are you taking away today? Uh, You too. No. <laughs> it just turned into uh, I really like the thing that you said about like the, the middle class being conned. It's basically this whole thing about markets and like aspirational money thingy. It's just a con for the middle class. Because I really like to think about the cycles of poverty and obviously to think of ways of how to trip them. But yeah, it's just a lot of people think of, oh yeah, people without money. But what about the people with a lot of money? And like a lot of money. What's up with that? Like why is it not only obviously easier for them, but like they spend less in for certain things. And that just seems like that's just so off. Um, and it's also another thing that I forgot to mention. It was like in terms of like taxation, because you did say like, you know, we all use stuff around us. But I can see how easy would be for someone that doesn't have a lot of money, that gets a good chunk of their paycheck cut in taxes, but then transit is not there, hospitals are not there, their education shit, you know, how it is very easy to start breaking apart the the trust in the institutions, because if you're paying a lot of money in taxes, but like your school system is falling apart, but the rich people don't pay enough in taxes and they get like the best education, the best school, the best, you know, like you, you, the loss of trust there is another thing that I'm really interested in because one would say, well, then get political, get active, get involved. When? What time? People who need to work don't have time to volunteer. So again, it's just another another um, layer to that. And uh, just I want to acknowledge that because it's not just like ah, people should pay tax. Yes, but also recognizing where the mistrust of that um, comes from sometimes. Yeah, I would want to know in that situation where that money is going then if it's not going to the schools and the hospitals and the roads and all that kind of stuff. I think there's, yeah, yeah there's yeah, a lot. You pay for police and then you get harassed. You know, like, so, you know, why? why? So that's, that's just another thing to throw in, into the mix. Well, that's a wrap. Um, Thank you, listeners, for your time, your attention, and just being awesome. You can find us where, Ruth? Oh, you can find us on Twitter, at Things Intersect. You could email us with your thoughts and wisdom and book recommendations at our Gmail address, thingsintersect at gmail.com. We have a website. Yeah, Yeah. at www.theintersectionofthings.com. You can find me on Twitter at Undaced and Such. And you can find me on Twitter at Nessient. N-E-S-I-E-N-T. That's the one. Yes! Yes! Amazing! (laughs) Okay, cool. (laughs) All right, Ruth. Thank you so much. I'll see you next time. I'll see you soon. Bye. Bye.